This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. If you're enjoying the ideas and inspiration from the wide variety of guests and their experiences from the last five seasons of this podcast, just know that the best way to take the next step and deepen your knowledge in order to apply the skills and learning to regenerate your world is to read a book. New Society Publishers' vision is to provide the world with fundamental tools to help build a just and ecologically sustainable society, and many of the guests that I've interviewed here on the show are authors published by them. You can find all of their work in ebook, audiobook, and classic paperback at newsociety.org. Hey there, everybody, and welcome back. Now, a lot of the work that I have at the moment is centered around building community and connecting people across Europe who are on a journey into regenerative agriculture. As I learn more and more about the farmers that I'm working with and their challenges and their desires for the future, I'm always struck by the stories that unfold. Stories of legacy, perseverance, experimentation, recovery from adversity, hope, and of course, so much more. As I work to gather and record these stories and to connect these people so that we can better collaborate and support one another, I've often been drawn to reflect on some of the past episodes in this podcast that have featured the unique stories of growers and land stewards. Now, one of my favorite episodes that centered around telling the stories of farmers was that of Elvira de Bridget, the author of the book Why We Farm, which is an investigation into the whole truth about life as a modern-day farmer. Viewed through the lens of the environment within the Cape Valley of Northern California, each chapter features a different model of farming. In each profile, farmers share their stories behind their work and their lives on the farm, the business side of production, the personal challenges that they face, and words of advice for the would-be farmer. The book asks hard questions and gives a reverent yet realistic picture of a thriving local food system that's emerging there. In this interview from back in season one of this show, Elvira talks about how she first came to the Cape Valley and her motivations behind wanting to live a farming lifestyle herself. We talk about how the farmers profiled in her book tell a larger story of modern farming in the United States, and even the trends and challenges facing the agricultural industry around the entire world. Elvira also gives a unique perspective into the growing community outreach that is strengthening the bonds in the valley and fostering a larger network of resilience that should be inspiring for anyone living in a rural community. Now, since this episode was recorded back in the days when I was living in a tiny shack in the mountains of Sununa, Guatemala, you'll have to forgive me about the audio quality and the awkward and robotic kind of broadcaster voice that I had in the early days of this show, back when I was still reading all of my questions verbatim from my interview outline. But I promise that Elvira's stories are really worth getting through it. So with that out of the way, I will hand things over now to Elvira de Bridget. Hello, Elvira. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks, Oliver, for inviting me. How are you doing today? Oh, great. How are things in the Cape Valley of California? Well, we've been having a streak of hot weather, um, but that's good for ripening stone fruit. Peaches and plums are coming in. Excellent. Well, hey, we'll get more into the area in which you live in a little while. But since I've got so many questions about your book, how about we just jump right into the first questions? Yes. All right. So could you start by telling me a little bit about your background? How did you become interested in farming and what is it that brought you to the Cape Valley specifically? 
Well, it all really started with a desire for, you know, fresh, wholesome food. Um, mostly after my first child was born, I just realized that it was really hard to find good organic food. Um, this was like 25 years ago. And even in the Bay Area back then, which is where I grew up, you know, you couldn't just walk into a grocery store and buy organic food. It was, um, it was really challenging. So I started traveling and, you know, looking for places to live in the country. And I loved scavenging you know, for any fruit that was, you know, left on neglected trees in the city. Um, started dreaming of living in the country. Um, yes, I moved around. 20s, um, looking for a place that really met those needs of healthy living, you know, fresh food, good water, and strong community. And eventually, you know, just by luck, really, circumstances brought me to Cape Valley. And yeah, I found that there's really a good combination of those three core needs that I had, and in a very down to earth way. There's not not a lot of, you know, like woo-woo energy here. It's just very practical, down-to-earth people and, you know, like practical progressives slowly gaining ground here over the last I mean, 30, 40 years. Um, so That's I've been remarkable. here 17. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say that I've been here 17 years, and that's the longest that I've ever been in one location, so... Very nice. I think a lot of us can relate to that search for idyllic food sources and a simpler way of life. Now, I know in your book, Why We Farm, you profile a number of organic farms in the Cape Valley in North Central California, where you are. And you also draw parallels to the larger farming industry as a whole. So how are these farms representative of the American farming industry and how are they unique? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, out as small family farms are really facing the same difficulties that farms all over the United States are facing. Um, you know, namely the real concentration of capital in big ag and this, a lot of regulation that is harder for small farms to keep up with. Um, and so, yeah, they're, you know, facing the same difficulties um, and they're unique in that this area, you know, maybe because of the geography and the history, they had, you know, kept small land holdings. Um, so big agriculture, agribusiness didn't get such a foothold here in this valley. And that enabled or kind of forced the farmers here to really become creative and think about how they could you know, sustain their farms. And um, so they've, yeah, out of necessity, looked for creative ways to market what they have. And um, yeah, there were a few key players that came along in the 70s. And I don't know, we can talk more about that. Fair you enough. Know, you might, it might come up <laughs> later. <laughs> well, so there's really a wide range of farming techniques that you've profiled in Why We Farm. From conventional to organic, you've got single specialty crop producers to wide product diversity. There are stories of young farmers and old farmers, single family farms, and even corporations. My question is, what among this diverse group did you find that connects them 
and what are some of the commonalities that readers of the book could learn from? Yeah, um, I'm wondering if you know if they all would see that they're really connected, but there have been some real efforts to you know connect this wide, diverse community. Um, again, you know they all face these similar difficulties and and also I found that you know everyone that I talked to you know maybe to different degrees but they all had a real desire to be stewards of the land they really had a love of the place where they were living and um you know and then yeah they have this need for community that um that I think that's, you know, really what people can learn from, from these stories is just how these farmers, yeah, the creativity that, that they came up with and how they learned to work together. Sure. I believe it was something that you said in the introduction of your book that all of these people are really here by choice and they really love where they are because farming is quite a difficult way to make a living, especially in modern times. And like you said, with some of the regulations and stuff that they have to overcome or that that are tough to get around. Um, so like this passion and stewardship seems from from the profiles that I that I read is really one of the connecting features of all of the people profiled in this book. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, I like I was thinking that of all to, I didn't, you know, meet anyone who was really cynical about their career choice. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, so one of my favorite stories in this book is that of Sika Hills Farm and Ranch. They're a very multifaceted operation and are fully owned by, I hope I'm saying this right, the Yocha Dihi tribe. Yep, that's right. And they're indigenous to that area. Could you tell my listeners a little bit about how their organization has grown and how some of their more recent efforts have helped to create a high-quality personal brand as well as community cooperation and collaboration? Yeah, well, I don't want to give it all away, but it is a really interesting story. Um, they, of course, had a lot of difficulties with you know European people coming in, the California gold rush and all that history that really um they still today are a really small tribe and they um they eventually did get a land grant from the government to um have a farm down in kind of the central part of the valley um which by the way is some of the colder that's like where the cold spot is in the valley so it's like some of the least ideal growing area and um but they, yeah, so they had to just lease out their farming in the beginning because they didn't have enough capital to start their own farm once they got this land. Um, but, you know, as times have changed, they they went from having a little bingo hall to then having a, a really nice casino now. And they've been able to use that income in order to develop their farming more which was a choice that they made in order to you know really invest in where they live and in the the land and in the community so they 
kind of started out a little bit by accident with growing these grapes just, you know, for landscape use. But then they decided, hey, let's try making some wine with these grapes. And then they had some success with that and thought, oh, yeah. And they had also bought a neighboring property that already had walnuts on it. And they saw that, you know, even just selling those on the open market was you know, some way to diversify with their income portfolio. And, and now they have really grown into having their own brand of olive oil and vinegar and wine are three of the big ones, but also nuts and they're making flavored nuts. And in the, just in the last couple of years, they have built this amazing facility right across the street from the casino, which is an olive mill, state of the art olive mill. And that's open, you know, to all olive farmers to come and have their olives pressed. And, and there's a tasting room there for customers to come in and see the operation and, and have some food and just have another experience while they're here at the, in the Cape Valley. That's fantastic. It's such a great story of sort of industrious growth and using sort of uh, value-added products to even bring further income into what's otherwise kind of a cutthroat industry in farming. Now, what are some of the unique things that the farmers that you work with do that will make a difference to their community in either the long and the short run? I think that what's really unique is the many ways in which the farmers here are working to have outreach with the public. They're, you know, on one level working with their own customers to have, you know, really close consumer farmer relations. So, and that kind of started in the 70s with Full Belly having direct relationships with chefs in the Bay Area and also starting up this um, CSA, the community-supported agriculture subscription boxes that, um, you know, they have newsletters that go out to those customers and they're really, you know, trying to have a close relationship and that, you know, really benefits everyone by the consumer having more education about what's going on on the farm and what it takes to grow this food. Um, And that, in turn, is... You know, also trying to educate policymakers. And so I think the farmers here, some of them anyway, um, are really focused on, yeah, being part of, you know, the Farm Bureau or the Ecological Farming Association or many different organizations that, so they're politically active and trying to educate people about, you know, what it will take to help small farms survive. Um, yeah, and then there's also community things that they've done, like organizing here, Cape Bay Valley Vision. There's been an ag task force for the last 10 years or more that has really worked on branding, uh, you know, quality reputation for the Cape Bay Valley. Fantastic. And I heard that there was also an effort to create a Cape Bay Valley brand itself in order to uh, increase marketing potential and right. and value to that area? Right. So that's what I was just referring to, that um, 
that they've, you know, really with this Ag Task Force brought together all these diverse farmers and non-farmers into one room talking about what they could do. And they were able to create a brand for the Cape Valley. Um, so, for instance, like the farmer veggie boxes that I used to see when I first moved here just had the farm name on it, maybe, you know, if it wasn't some generic box. <laughs> and now there are boxes that the farmers can buy together as a community that have the Cape Valley logo on it and um, and also logos for signs as you drive up the highway that, um, you know, show Cape Valley grown in the Cape Valley. Um, and out of that effort for branding also came this Cape Valley farm shop, which is a way for people who are just growing, you know, on a smaller scale, one or two crops for them to, you know, join with other farmers and sell their produce all together through one outlet called Cape Valley farm shop, which is online. And for a while had a storefront in Vacaville, so, yeah, just really promoting the reputation of you know, the quality food that's grown here. That's really inspiring. Now, on another note, and going back to what we talked about uh, with the passion of the farmers that you profiled for land stewardship, I know they also have a major concern um, from those that you've interviewed about their relationship with their environment. So, obviously, the long-running drought in California has affected that area a lot. So things like water management and drought-resistant crops are big focuses. So how do many of these farmers see their role as stewards of the land, and how are they investing in the long-term health of their environment? Yeah, it's interesting. I wonder if I had done these interviews with farmers this year, it would be a little different because I was definitely interviewing during the drought, and people were really concerned about that. And that, you know, the drought seems to be something in California that comes around every, I don't know, every 10 years or so. But we, um, yeah, the farmers here in Cape Valley have done a lot in terms of their different long-term, you know, work with the environment. Um, one common thing that I saw was really focusing on having hedgerows that will increase the native pollinators in the area. There's quite a few farms that have recognized the importance of doing that. Um, and also real health. There's, you know, full belly and river dog farm, you know, just bringing in lots of compost and lots of amendments and, um, and also really trying to practice some no-till methods that's in like a more recent thing that people are trying to do um yeah there's been so many there's the energy shed movement a few years ago to really see if we could create a sustainable energy source here in the valley which um was determined that it would be better for people to try and do that individually but it was just a just those kind of forward thinking efforts to yeah really try and think of this valley as one region that that to protect that's fantastic it sounds like you know even if the conversation eventually comes to the conclusion that it's better for th things to be implemented on an individual scale 
just the fact that your community is having those conversations and considering working together from the beginning is really inspiring. Yeah, it really is. And some of that developed out of the casino coming, you know, getting bigger and people, you know, not, not being okay with that. And then conversations you know, coming about, it was like, well, how are we all going to work together as a community and this big influence coming in with all more traffic. And so out of those conversations came, you know, a few farmers and um, some of the leaders of the tribe working together to create this Cape Valley vision um, organization, which dealt a lot with agriculture, but also with transportation issues and tourism issues. And yeah, they had a few different task forces. That's such a great story. Now, while you were interviewing these farmers, what were some of the things that surprised you most or that you learned from your conversations that you didn't know before? Hmm. Well, again, like I said, about how they all just really loved their work and, you know, felt like they were, you know, in the right place doing what they needed to do, even though, you know, sometimes it can be really difficult. I mean, they can be really on the edge of solvency and, um, yeah, and what one thing that really surprised me was how much um, cooperation there is that goes on, you know, even though some of these farms are, you know, ostensibly competing for the same markets down mostly in the Bay Area and Sacramento, they have worked out ways to cooperate so they'll even, you know, share um, share cold storage space and then share trucks that are delivering out. They'll, you know, work together to make those deliveries happen so there's less driving needed. That was one of the things that really surprised me. Now, through your research, what are some of the most urgent issues that family farmers are facing these days? And what are some of the ways that you see them dealing with these obstacles? Yeah, I think one of... The biggest obstacles is just this trend towards, um, you know, abundant, cheap food in the market and how that, you know, how these small farmers are trying to deal with that. There's been this trend for farmers to be, you know, public policy kind of helping them like cut their costs and stuff, but you know, that can only go so far. And so that's, that's a big issue. And yeah, creating these relationships with people to educate about that and um, advocating for policy changes. Like one thing that you know, people kind of assume is that, oh, well, you can just mechanize agriculture to save costs and to deal with the loss of labor that is really having a big impact. And, you know, but for the small farmer, that's just a big expense. Again, you really have to have a lot of capital in order to afford these, you know, these machines. And so it's, it's just hard to have good stewardship of the land when the market forces are 
you know, out there just trying the macro trend is to just have cheaper food. Um, but there is, you know, a small group of people, hopefully a growing group, which understands the need to support farmers in a different way. And so, yeah, I think the farmers here are really trying to, you know, expand on that. And yeah, there's been some amazing things that have come out of that with, you know, growing CSA movements and just a growing awareness about, you know, how organic food was not only good for your own health, but the health of the environment. Yeah, fantastic. I definitely count myself in that group of people you mentioned who realize that farmers need to be supported and um, be valued for the work that they do, especially in, you know, these times of industrial farming and increasing amounts of toxicity in our food supply. And like you said, the macro trend of just focusing solely on production, even at the expense of the health of the land and the food products that come out of it. And I really like this book for giving an inside look at the opinions and the lifestyles of farmers from tons of different backgrounds and all different types of operations. Uh, in fact, I really love the stories like the ones of uh, owners of Pasture 42, who admittedly had a big learning curve after being wolf volunteers and then had to change their plans and practices a lot when they moved their grass-fed cattle operation from Oregon to the Cape Valley. And also the profile of uh, Annie Henner at Leapfrog Farm, who learned through gardening jobs and trial and error while getting her one-woman show off the ground. I mean, they're great examples of where many of my listeners are with their own ambitions and their own learning experiences. Now, what are some of the key pieces of advice that you've heard from farmers who didn't grow up farming and essentially started from scratch? Yeah, um, some of the big pieces of advice was to do internships and you know, do as many as you can and take your time with that. Um, and it's been amazing to see what interns who have come through the Cape Valley have been able to do in other areas of the world. Like we have um, some, you know, people who've gone back to Ohio and Minnesota where it's mostly corn and soy and started, you know, vegetable farming. And, um, and so, yeah, that's amazing. But getting back to your question, um, another thing that really surprised me was that you know, farmers saying, you know, you don't have to start by buying the land. Um, you, know, you can lease the land and then grow your business and then buy land. You know, once you've got capital going and got your markets and you feel secure. Um, and there's this also, yeah, I learned that there are a lot of organizations that can really help farmers. Like, um, yeah, from Pasture 42, that they... Once they learned about the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund, they, you know, felt secure in being able to create this small dairy. And, um, you know, so many of those are going out of business, but they're starting one just from, yeah, from their own creativity, but feeling like they have the security of, um, of a group and organization behind them. And... And also with interns too, there are groups like um, Mesa and where 
they can help educate interns as a group and help farmers to make sure that they're doing everything legal in terms of taking on interns. Um, yeah. And so there's definitely a, a lot of help out there. And that was something that the farmers here really shared with me. And, um, and yeah, Annie Henner at Leapfrog Farm was so great how she was just saying that she, you know, never thought that she would want to go into farming, even though she saw it around her as she was growing up. Um, she was, you know, spending time on farms as a child, but wasn't interested in what was really going on there. And um, how that changed as, like you said, she took these um, little gardening jobs in college, and then one thing led to another. Um, and she really talks about how the community here, you know, was is really important to her from starting out from scratch, you know, just realizing that she could, you know, ask another farmer, you know, for help with, you know, fixing her tractor or, um, yeah, just all kinds of advice. So, and she has been really active with the, um, young farmers guild, I forget the name of it exactly, but, um, that's another organization that, that she has found helpful. Yeah, I'm really glad you mentioned these organizations. Like you said, the the Young Farmers Guild and the Legal Action Fund that you spoke about that helped uh, the owners of Pasture 42. I mean, if I remember specifically, they had to find a creative way to allow unpasteurized milk products into market because as it currently stands under FDA regulations in the United States, you can't sell unpasteurized uh, dairy products to, to consumers directly. And basically, they found a way around it by having uh, basically a membership of consumers that directly bought shares of the cattle that they have on their ranch. And right. in that way, they can they can get the dairy products directly without it having to go to market. I, I love loopholes like that, and um, but it definitely exposes some of the the idiosyncrasies and maybe even call them you know corrupt aspects of our. <laughs> agricultural reg uh, regulations. So for anybody who's got dairy yeah. farms, that may be uh, a creative or, or a viable way to stick to your ethics or offer higher quality products when it's seemingly impossible otherwise. Yeah, yeah, they were just really lucky to have met some other people who were exploring this this option and, and they were ready to jump in. Um, but yeah, over-regulation is, a, well, I don't know if it's over-regulation, but just the differences in regulation for, you know, big agribusiness compared to small farms. That's one thing that I've looked at this project is that, you know, we really need to be able to differentiate and have different regulations for different types of farms because it's, it's a really a burden on the small farms to have well, some of the extra costs of, you know, some of the regulations like the Clean Water Act was one thing that some farmers mentioned. And the minimum wage doesn't really work with how seasonal labor is, you know, they can't pay overtime to people during this time of, you know, high harvest. So, um, so yeah, it's tricky, but people are being creative about things like that also in terms of well, having maybe a collective workforce that can go different farms, you know, through the summer, 
spread it out so that they're working the same amount of hours, but not on one farm. So that way it doesn't get into um, the high cost of having um, overtime. Yeah, those are all good points and they're very tricky to navigate in a legal system. But hey, just before we wrap up here, uh, I just want to say to all my listeners that I highly recommend this book. Uh, I get a lot of authors through here on the podcast, almost all of whom are you know, profiling different types of farming methods or natural building methods, and it's a lot of instructional material. And this one really stuck out to me as, you know, for, especially for people who aspire to go into farming for themselves, the profiles of the farmers and the operations in this book really give you a good idea of, you know, the challenges the blessings, and just the living situation of people who have adopted this as their lifestyle and have been doing it either for short or long periods of time. And I think it gives great perspective, you know, even though it's focused on a microcosm of the Cape Valley, um, also of the larger trends in agriculture in modern times right now. And it's a, it's a fantastic perspective and look at those things. So Thanks for writing that book. And can you tell my listeners how they can get in contact with you and find the book for themselves? Yeah, thanks so much, Oliver. Um, the book is just about to be for sale on Amazon like this coming week. And meanwhile, you can get information about it by going to Why We Farm K-Pay, just spelled with a C, um, C-A-P-A-Y, at, um, yeah, dot com. <laughs> And that's our website or on Facebook at Why We Farm. And yeah, it'll be coming out very shortly. Fantastic. Well, Elvira, thank you so much for taking your time today. It was a real pleasure speaking to you. And I hope that we can catch up again sometime soon. Yeah, thanks, Olive. I've really enjoyed listening to your podcast and looking at your blogs. And thanks a lot for having me. It's my pleasure. Take care. Bye. Now, thanks once again, retrospectively, to Elvira. I'll be posting all of the links and the contacts that she mentioned in the show notes for this episode on the website, where you can also find all of the previous episodes from the last five seasons. Now, before we wrap this up, just remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the ongoing conversations happening around these topics on the Regenerative Skills Discord server. It's always free to join, and it's also the easiest way to get in touch with me directly. So if you're interested in helping to guide the direction and the focus of this show into the future, or just get some feedback on your own projects and have some of your questions answered, it's all happening there. So come and join the growing community of Earth Regenerators on the forum by signing up through the link on our website or through our link tree on Instagram. Well, so that's our session for this week. Be sure to subscribe to this show and leave a review wherever you stream your podcast from so that you never miss an episode. And until next time, keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way.